Let's pray before we come to God's Word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that You would take all the distractions, the minutia of this life and even the things in this room, and that You would quickly set them aside from our mind's eye. And that we would do the best and the good thing Mary was commended for, that we would just sit at your feet, desirous to hear your word, to commune with you, and we pray that your voice would resonate in the deep parts of our heart and our soul and our conscience this morning. We pray all of this in the strong name of our Lord and our Savior Christ Jesus, Amen. This morning from Jonah chapter 1, looking at verses 7 through 16, this is the holy and errant word of God this morning. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots. I tell you what, let's go back up to verse 4 actually, verse 4 through 16. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. What an account. Jonah is on a ship and he is 
sleeping in the hole of that ship, in the bottom of that ship, and the ship is being tossed to and fro by the wind and the waves of the sea as it rolls and as it storms, and and the wood of the ship begins to creak, and the ship itself begins to fall apart. In the Hebrew there, it actually personifies the ship, and and it literally reads, she was breaking up. And the storm was so great, and the threat was so imminent that these sailors, these seasoned sailors, which had been on the sea many times before, that they're, they're, in, they're fearful for their lives. They're afraid that they're going to perish, and that this ship is going to break up underneath them. They know that their life is in absolute jeopardy. So in verse 5, they cried out to their God. They had done everything that they knew to do. They had bailed water. They had trimmed the sails. They had done everything. And so now they are on their knees and each of them are crying out to their God for relief. And it still does not relent. The winds continued to, to howl and the waves continued to crash and the boat continued to fill up with water. And these Seasoned sailors are struck with utter fear. When I am flying, I, uh, which I do on occasion, probably six or seven times a year, going to different meetings. And, you know, when you're in a plane and all of a sudden the turbulence hits, I do one thing. My eyes immediately go to the flight attendant. Now, if they're calm, I'm calm. But if there's fear in their eyes, or if they stare at each other and make eye contact, and they're, they're shaking their heads at each other, I'm afraid. Because they're seasoned. They've been through this. They know what is safe. They know what is not. These seasoned sailors were absolutely trembling with fear. They're so afraid that they begin taking all of the cargo that is on the ship and they're throwing it overboard. This is their money. This is their pay. They're throwing it all over. They're concerned. Rightfully so. You see the scene in your mind, the, the winds raging and the The waves crashing and these seasoned sailors, they are running back and forth on deck and they are sweating and they are crying out and many of them have dropped to their knees in prayer. All of them are uttering prayers. They're probably screaming at each other and some of them are crying. And then the the camera pans as it will. And the drama is high. If this was a Hollywood movie, you know, the, the music would be, would be roaring at this point. You know, the winds, they are, they are building up and the waves and, and you see all of this boat, this boat is going down and it's crashing and then all of a sudden it pans to Jonah and he's asleep in the bottom of the boat. He's asleep. Verse 5. Jonah had lain down and was fast asleep. Jonah, what are you doing? Asleep in the bottom of the boat. The the Greek Septuagint, the Old Testament in the Greek, says he was actually snoring. He's snoring away. 
All of this is going on on deck and the sea is raging and Jonah, the contrast Jonah in the bottom of the boat is just snoring. Sleep. You have to be pretty tired to be sleeping in the midst of that. And Jonah was. As we saw last week, he had run in disobedience from the Lord. He had sought to avoid the word of the Lord and sought to avoid the presence of the Lord and he was exhausted. And maybe like many of us, he was sleeping to escape reality. He was just hiding. For many of us, when we are disobedient to God, we find sleep to be a great escape. Disobedience to God, that mental anguish that there is in disobeying, disobeying God often causes us to want to just flee and get away from everything that we can. And so we enter into this dream world and shut our eyes. Guilt is just so heavy. It can rack our bodies. It can take a a physical toll on us. I think of David in Psalm 32 after he had sinned with Bathsheba and he has committed adultery and He says in language that we can understand, he says, For when I was silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Haven't you felt that way before when when you're in sin and disobedience and you're running from the Lord? And it just feels like your bones are being crushed as David says. And you're just, you're just physical energy is just zapped. You, you are just exhausted. And it feels like every moment of life is a marathon and you're just trying to get to the end of the day. Why? So that you might sleep. Just living in disobedience can have quite a toll. But we... we we know that that's what's happening, but, but that sin, that, that pet sin that we have fallen in love with and that we have nurtured and we have nourished and, and we don't think we can live without, can't let it go. There is no heavier burden, though, than a burdened conscience. Maybe this is why Jonah is so fast asleep. He, he's just tired and he's worn out as he is under the severe hand of the Lord. And so the captain, he comes down from the deck of the ship. You, you can almost picture this. The captain stumbling his way to that entrance that would go below deck. And, and he opens that door and he climbs down that ladder as he's fighting against the wind and the rain. And he gets to the bottom and he sees Jonah asleep. And he erupts in anger in verse 6. What do you mean, you sleeper? You sleeper. And Jonah with probably groggy eyes and mind that's just beginning to wake up, he hears a familiar word, arise. It's the same word that God had used when He called Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach to those people. Arise, Jonah. 
And now this, this captain comes down from the deck and comes into the below, into the hole, and he says, Arise! And how that must have just pricked the conscience of Jonah. The captain says, Arise! Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. It reached their last resort. Desperation has set in. They, they have done everything that they know. They have thrown their cargo overboard so that the ship might ride a little higher in the water and not get dashed across the rocks. They have bailed water. They have each cried out to their gods, maybe as many gods as there were sailors on that boat. They think, well, there is one last man. Maybe it's his God. If you call out to your God, Jonah, maybe this will all end. Maybe he will care. Why? Because they know that this isn't an accident. These seasoned sailors, any people at this time would have no doubt that God was causing this. Things don't just happen. But we're more sophisticated, aren't we? If we were telling that story and if it was a Hollywood movie, you would have seen the waves and you would have seen the wind, but amidst all of our understanding and all of our scientific knowledge, we often miss the most important thing which these sailors understood. Behind all of this is a sovereign power. That things don't just happen. Remember verse 3 where Jonah's disobedience began, but Jonah. But Jonah. God had said, Jonah, go to Nineveh, but Jonah. And he runs off. Well, God's not content to allow disobedience and His children running from Him. So verse 4, but God. The winds and the waves are no accident, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, but God. And but God trumps but Jonah or but Jason or but Elizabeth or but Mary or but Harry every single time. But God. Our first point this morning, our God is the sovereign God of providence. Jonah's fleeing in, away from the Lord is just foolhardy. You know, if there is a God... This God has power. And the sailors, they recognize this, so they call out to their gods. And, and as Christians, you and I know that God does not just have some limited power that He shares with a host of others, but that He has sovereign power. He's not one power among many in the world. If anything in the universe has power, it has power because it derives that power from God Himself. He created all things and He holds all things in the palm of His hand. Our God is the sovereign God of providence. Everything happens according to His will and His determination. And Jonah knows this. He says in verse 9, after they awake and want Him to know, and they want to know who He is, He says, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. They, they asked him his occupation too, but he couldn't get out the fact that he's a prophet. He doesn't want that out. 
But he immediately says, look, I fear the Lord, the Lord God of heaven and earth who made the sea and the dry land. He's the creator of all of this. By implication, as the creator, he is also Lord over his creation. He's the sovereign God of providence. What does that mean? means that God not only created all things, but He sustains all things and He governs all things. Who's in charge of the universe? Who directs what happens or doesn't happen? Who decides or what decides that, that you awoke this morning with the breath of life? Who or what decided that you traveled from your house or from your dorm room or from your apartment and arrived here safely? Who decided that all of these lights would be out this morning? The Bible is very clear and loudly declares that our God is a sovereign God of providence. He did. The winds and the waves are being directed. Every breath of wind that went across that boat was directed by God. Every single raindrop that was falling from the clouds was descending based upon the course that He set for. Whether it landed on the deck or whether it landed on the cap of one of those sailors, whether it landed on their brow, He had decided every single raindrop falling and where it would fall. He's the sovereign God of providence. Do you believe that? Do you trust in that? You awoke this morning and you stood in your shower. And I hope you took a shower. And that water came out of the nozzle and those drops fell down. Why did they fall down? He said, well, it's gravity. Where does gravity get its order? Where is the power in gravity? It's from the Lord. Sitting here this morning in these pews. Why can you sit upon these pews? What upholds them? they're, They're fixed upon the floor. They're bracketed to the floor. But, but those are just means that the Lord uses. Your ability to sit here this morning and, and those pews being in their place and being sustained and not crashing underneath you is God's sustaining power. You all sang this morning. How could you sing this morning? Because He loosened your tongue. Because He gave your ears the ability to receive notes this morning. Because He gave you breath to exhale today. Sovereign God of providence. Or do you think that everything or even some things happen by chance? Or by accident? Or by coincidence? If anything occurs by chance or by accident or by coincidence, even one thing in this world, then God is not sovereign. We have no hope. That is not the God of the Bible. The Bible is clear. There's no such thing as Lady Luck. She doesn't exist. 
There's no accidents. There's no happenstance. There's no blind fate. God alone created the universe out of nothing. That's Jonah's testimony. He's the God who made the sea and the dry land. And the implication is this storm that you are all fearful of, it's His acting. It's His decree. It's His willing. It's His moving. This creation follows the dictates of its Creator. It is raging at His direction. You say, well, I don't believe in chance, but I believe in the laws of nature. Friends, if there is order, it's because God established it and sustains it. The universe would disappear in an instant. In an instant. If God was not sustaining it. There would be no laws of nature apart from Him. He directs it as Jonah is acknowledging. Without His direction, the universe would become disordered and swirl in chaos. The winds and the waves that are racking this boat, they, they are not a sign of disorder, but a sign of order. So it isn't the result of some nebulous and heretical thing called Mother Nature. It's the result of God's acting. In Psalm 104, for example, we're told that God makes the springs gush forth. From His lofty abode you water the mountains, the psalmist says. Rivers flow because of God. He says you cause the grass to grow. Rain comes down and the, and the grass comes up because God determines it. And causes it. When I read the Puritans, I love that they never seem to say that it's raining. You have to read a Puritan that says it's raining. But they will often say God is sending rain. He's sending rain. Remember as a child, I especially remember this for whatever reason in my first grade classroom. I remember us sitting there one day and the thunder was so loud outside. And I remember the conversation in that first grade classroom turning to, what is that? And someone said, well, that's angels bowling in heaven. And I remember thinking that's what it was. Must be angels bowling in heaven. It sounds like that. Some of you are scientists or have scientific leadings and you would say well it's just an electrical buildup that's being released but as christians we know that there is something even more significant here than than that the thunder cracks and the lightning flashes to show forth the power of god the skies proclaim his handiwork the psalmist says the heavens declare his glory of course, there are laws of nature, but there are laws because there's a lawgiver. And the laws continue to work because God continues to work through them. The moment He stops, they stop being laws. There's order because there is one who orders. And it is our God. It's our God. The Sovereign God of providence. He's the first cause of all things. 
Nothing happens apart from His decreeing and His acting. Yes, He uses means. He uses secondary means. He uses tertiary means. He used the wind to stir up the waves, that the waves might come over the boat, that the boat might begin to sink. But all the secondary, all the tertiary causes have a cause behind them. And that is God. In some ways, it's, it's not even right to, speak about God as the first as the first cause because it's a it's a categorical distinction that doesn't make a lot of sense he is qualitatively different he is the uncaused cause where all the secondary and tertiary causes are are caused by him you could say it's like playing pool or billiards and that, that cue ball as, as God is, is hit and it bounces into another ball and that ball bounces into another ball and they be, all begin to, to go their distinct ways and there was a first cause. But even that's a poor analogy. Because as the first cause, God doesn't just hit one ball and then stop. But rather, what is it that causes that ball to go into the other bowls? It's, it's the very power of God that is going through these bowls and that is carrying them. He ordains all things. He causes all things to pass. Nothing happens apart from Him. Psalmist says in Psalm 147, verse 15, He sends out His commands to the earth and the earth always obeys His commands. God is not idle in heaven. He's not sitting enthroned above and just watching you and I scurry around down here like ants. He's active. He doesn't say whatever happens, happens. No, he's governing, and this is no idle governing. Of course, that brings up the question, what about evil? What about even Jonah's sin here? Does that mean that God caused Jonah to run away in disobedience? You may remember that wonderful account in the Old Testament when Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. His brothers sell him into slavery and eventually Joseph will raise to second position in all of Egypt and and there will be used by the Lord to save the nation of Israel. Was it Joseph's brother's decision to sell him into the slavery to these people that were going by? Yes. And yet, did God use it for the very salvation of the nation of Israel? Yes. This is what theologians call the doctrine of concurrence. Even as we act in evil or wickedness or according to our own wills, God accomplishes His purposes. God's sovereign, good providence rules over everything. Even wickedness and evil. And so even when that is occurring, He's accomplishing His purposes. He's working out His ends. Our God is the sovereign God of providence. Jonah knows the cause of the storm. He knows that it is him. So the sailors say, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? And Jonah tells them, well, just 
just throw me into the sea. Why? Because he knows. He knows that our God, the sovereign God of providence, is, is pursuing him. And that is our second point. God, the sovereign God of providence, pursues His people and He will not let them go. It is one of the great blessings of all the universe that a sovereign God, a God who sits enthroned above and needs no one and needs nothing, exercises that sovereignty to pursue you and I. And he will not let his people go. He cares so much that he even brings the forces of nature to bear in pursuit of Jonah. He, he literally moves heaven and earth to save us from ourselves. He pursues his people to the very end. There are some of you this morning out in a room like this, who are running from the Lord. You're running from His Word. You're running from His presence, as, as Jonah was doing. You've been convicted of your sin. But it's just too precious. You, this has been a friend for too long. Or it's been such an intense friend for this period of time, and you don't want to let it go. You can't seem to let it go. God pursues His people to the very end, and you will find that the universe is too small to hide from God in. Our sovereign God of providence pursues His people. Is that you this morning? Do you have a pet sin? A sin that you don't want to part from. And so you're doing the opposite of Christian and Pilgrim's Progress where his neighbors are yelling at him to come back and, and don't go off to the celestial city and he's, he's covering his ears so that he can't hear their temptations. You're covering your ears to the calling of God and you're just running and running and running and hardening your heart more and more and more. It's too costly. This does not end well. There are only two possibilities. When His people are running from Him, there are only two possibilities. Either our hearts are getting harder and harder and so He is going to exercise His, His discipline as a Father and He is going to pursue us as His people to the end. And it will have to be a hard pursuit to wake us up. And it will be painful. And it will be costly. What's worse is that He chooses not to pursue and you prove by continuing to run that you never actually knew Him and you weren't one of His. Those are the only two options when you and I keep traipsing after sin and aren't willing to confess it and repent from it. 
sat with a man years ago who I love and whom I love. And we were at a Christian conference together and we were sitting next to each other at this Christian conference listening to preaching. And I had noticed in him in the years prior to this that it just seemed he was wandering farther and farther from the Lord. His heart had become callous and hard. That day as we were sitting at that Christian conference and we were listening to preaching, I watched him as, as he was busy on his phone and he was busy looking around at everyone and And I don't even think he realized it, but it was probably just a subconscious way of falling asleep, of escaping. My conscience was pricked and felt like I need to say something to my brother. And so at a break in the conference, we were standing in the hallway and I approached him and I expressed my concern about what I saw as a wandering from God and hardness of heart. I didn't, didn't know what the sin was, but it was apparent to me. And that wasn't by accident. That wasn't happenstance. I think, no doubt, it was the Lord's prodding in the moment and the Lord pursuing one of His own. But it didn't end happily. This brother, he erupted in anger at me. He said, aren't you a holier than thou? And don't you just think that you're perfect? Far from the case. It was within a year that that brother was sitting in a prison for crimes that would turn your stomach to hear. The Lord was pursuing him, and the Lord would continue to pursue him to the point of even seeing him incarcerated to bring him back to himself. It was painful, but it didn't have to be that painful. Our sovereign God of providence loves his children. And He will lead us through pain and trial and storms so that He might awake us from our slumber. And oh, it is better to be awoken when that pain and that suffering and that trial is slight. And to go deeper and have a harder and harder heart so that it takes a larger and larger storm to wake you up. I wonder... I wonder if some of you this morning, if your conscience is pricked, say, awake, you sleeper. Awake. And you just you turn to the Lord in repentance and you turn to Him in confession of sin. He's pursuing you for your good. Arise, says the captain. Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us. Ah, this sovereign God gives more than a thought. 
He's not like the God of the Greeks or the God of the Romans or the God of the Egyptians or the God of the Canaanites or Allah or Buddha or any other God. He doesn't just care for us or give a thought to us for a moment. He cares for us in each and every moment. All of His people are constantly before His eyes. He does not slumber. He does not sleep. He does not shut an eye to us. Oh, He cares. He's always caring for His people. Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. How? Because our God is the sovereign God of providence. And he pursues his people. You know, that Romans 8, 28, we often quote to one another, but it continues. It, it, it is just the introduction to what theologians have called that golden chain of salvation. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The sovereign God of providence pursues his people to the end that they might be justified and glorified in the end. That's why he pursues them. He will not lose us. You see, our salvation, His keeping of us, is tied together with His covenant promises that He will neither leave us nor forsake us, that He will be with us even to the end of the age, that none can, can snatch us out of His hands because He is greater than all. And so if He loses one of His own, it robs glory from so it won't be done. He won't allow it. So he'll pursue his own to the very ends of the earth rather than lose you. That is how much you are the object of his affection. And that leads to our third and final point. The sovereign God of providence is the God of salvation. This account in Jonah in the Old Testament has a counterpart in the New Testament and in the Gospels in Mark 4. Remember that Jesus and his disciples, they are on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus, like Jonah, is asleep in the, in the stern of the ship. And like in Jonah where you have these seasoned sailors that are fearful because the wind and the waves are rolling and the boat is beginning to sink. So in Mark 4, you have these seasoned sailors, disciples, many of them who had been on the Sea of Galilee all the days of their life, fearful because there is wind and there are waves and this is a storm that could stink this ship. So you'll remember that in Mark 4, these disciples, they are gripped with fear. And as that captain came down and awoke Jonah, so the disciples awake Jesus. And they use the same word. The same word that the captain used with Jonah. Where that captain said to Jonah, he said, call out to your God, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The disciples awake Jesus in Mark 4 and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Call out to your God that He may have a thought to us that we may not perish. 
Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Oh, he cares. He cares enough that God the Father sends his only begotten Son into this world to live in his creation and die in his creation for sinners. He will pursue us to the end, to the end, even the sacrifice of his own Son. That's how much He cares. The sovereign God is the God of salvation. You know, these sailors, they were, they were calling out to their gods and there was no answer, was there? But there is from Him. There is from God. Jonah, the sailors, they are moved with fear. They go from being afraid of the sea there in verse 5 to verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid. And then in verse 16, after they've thrown Jonah over the side of the boat and the sea and the waves that they, they calm, it says the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. From fear of the storm to fear of God. It's the same way in Mark 4. The disciples wake up Jesus, they are fearful of the storm, and Jesus, though, arises just like Jonah arose, but as Jonah could only calm the sea by throwing, being thrown into it, Jesus arises with the very sovereign power of God and speaks by the Spirit and says, Peace, be still. And the sea ceases raging. It stops. And do you remember the disciples' response? Who is this? That even the wind and the seas obey Him. And it says they feared Him. Who is this? And the answer is, it's our God. Our God, sovereign God of providence who works salvation for His people. It is He alone that saves. You and I are such Fools to want to escape from this God. Such fools. Why would we run from Him? Hugh Martin, a pastor in the 19th century, was reading him this week, and he imagined these pagan sailors approaching the disobedient, fleeing Jonah with questions. Hugh Martin wrote this, Suppose yourself in Jonah's place and hear the question put to you, to you, a man of God by heathen men. Why hast thou done this? Isn't that a question for us? Why would you run from this God? Why have you done this? And Martin continues here with a series of questions that these sailors asked Jonah. Did your God provoke you to flee from Him? Did he deal so hardly and unkindly with you that you had no alternative but flight? Were you tired of your God? Have you found him out as no more worthy of your trust and obedience? Had you gone to the end of all the duty that you owed to him? Or of all the protection and support that he could afford to you? Why didn't you listen to him? Produce your strong reasons. Has God been a wilderness to you? Have you found a better friend? Have you found a worthier portion? 
Have you found a sweeter employment than meditation in His Word and calling on His name? Have you found Him unfaithful to His promise? Have you discovered that He discourages people? Will you say that the more you have known Him, the less you have thought of Him? To all of these questions, His people would say with a loud, No, in answer. No. And you turn to Him. And you stop running from Him. Jonah has run so far And he has hardened his heart so much that though he acknowledges that God is calling to him and though he acknowledges that God is pursuing him, when the sailors ask him what to do, Jonah, instead of responding in repentance, he says, you know what? Just cast me into the sea. Cast me into the sea. Don't let your heart get there. Don't let it get there. you are wandering today, if you are fleeing from the Lord, and you count yourself as one of His children, or you once counted yourself as one of His children, it's quite simple, my friends. You just stop. Instead of running away from the Lord, you run to the cross. That's it. And you come to the cross, and you confess your sins, and you repent, and you're clean. Walk on. It's that simple. It's that easy. If he is pricking your conscience this morning, don't you dare walk out of this room without stopping and running to the cross. Save yourself a lot of heartache. Because he will not lose his people. What if you're not there this morning? What if you're walking in the Lord and and you're on that path of discipleship? Yes, you sin, but there is no sin that you're you're stroking and petting and and cultivating and nourishing. Like all of us, you are a sinner and you are a saint. Well then, you continue to seek the Lord. You continue to pursue after Him and you keep a guard over your heart. How do you do that? Oh, every night when you go to bed, you kneel or you lay in your bed and you rehearse your day and you confess every sin. Every sin you can think of. Not to beat yourself up, but so that Satan may have no grip upon your heart. And you confess. So there's none that you're nourishing, none that you're nurturing. And you repent. And you thank the Lord for His grace and then you go to sleep with a clear conscience. You're clean. You're washed whiter than snow. And then when you wake up in the morning, you begin your day, you open the Bible and you read and you pray so that you can set a guard on your heart. 
so that you are aware before you do anything, before you look at Facebook, before you get up and check your Twitter account or Instagram or whatever that is, or, or go and work out at the gym, or you get in your car and you're driving or you're jumping in the shower, whatever it is, you stop and you search your heart by reading the Scriptures, by praying, and you set a guard there. And then throughout the day, you tend to your heart. You stop at moments just to pray to the Lord. When you're convicted of sin, just to confess that sin and then go on with your day. You safeguard it. You constantly run to the cross all day long so that your heart does not become hard and you don't start running from the Lord. I want to get to that place where you're crying out with Jonah, just throw me overboard. God is a sovereign God of providence. He is pursuing us and He will pursue us until the very end until He brings us in the gates of heaven and He says, you are now home. You've finished the race. You've completed the course. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Serve your sovereign God today. Bow before Him. Let's pray. Lord our God, we are thankful that you did not just create all things, but that you rule over all things. And oh, Father, how we are thankful that you don't just rule in a haphazard fashion, but that you rule and you work in this world for the good of your people. Oh, Father, we delight in having such a God. God that cares so much for us that you would pursue us to the very ends of the earth. And Father, if there is any unconfessed sin in our life, if there is any sin that we are nurturing and we are harboring and that we are enjoying and forsaking you, oh, lead us to repentance. Be kind with us and pour out your grace upon us. And stop us before we head towards greater destruction. How good it is to be your people. Know that we are in the palm of your hand. May we give you glory with our life, with our living. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.